now entering the Phantom Squad Podcast. Enjoy the madness. Hey everyone, this is another episode of the Phantom Squad Podcast. My guest this week is a writer, programmer, author, and all-around awesome cartoon historian, Mr. Mark McRae. How's it going, Mark? It's going great. It's so great to be here, and uh, thanks for inviting me on your show. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. I know I've seen you around the podcast land, and I knew I had to get you. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Awesome. Now, I know uh, you started a podcast recently. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah, so um, I was doing a convention uh, in 2019 called Treklanta, and I presented a, uh, a panel about uh, Star Trek the Animated Series and how that series influenced the uh, future franchises of, of Star Trek. And uh, I was approached by Dan Klink, and who already had you know a few uh, different podcasts uh, that you know he was producing through the ESO network, and they invited me um, uh, to be interviewed on Nerdbliss. And then shortly after that, uh, Dan you know contacted me and wanted to know if I was wanted to do a podcast, and I had been wanting to do one, so it was just like perfect timing. Yes, and so uh, we. Uh, and kind of, you know, um, wrote out what we wanted to talk about, what the episode should be, um, it should be if it should be part one or part two, and uh, we've been working really well together, you know, sort of uh, bouncing off each other, um, ideas and and our love for cartoons and animation and live action and everything Saturday morning. Awesome. Yeah, I've been I've been a listener since I first saw it, and um, I, I learned from the podcast that I didn't know, because I've always, I grew up because I had older siblings, so I got the trickle down of their cartoon watching, so I didn't know about the whole thing with the Smurfs and the Snorks. I thought they were the same thing, but I think you said they were like two different companies or something? Yeah, so there are two different um, franchises, but they belong, they're part of the same comic book uh, publishing family. Oh, cool. And- yeah, and I think what we talked about during uh, that particular episode was that the Smurfs were, were created into Saturday morning cartoons specifically to hopefully blow up bigger than the Smurfs. Yes. Because <laughs> the guy uh, that brought the Smurfs, or that was part of the negotiations for the Smurfs, um, had a lot of issues with the creator of of the Smurfs um, comic strip and animated series. And so he wanted something of his own and he ended up, um, you know, discovering the Snorks and, you know, selling that to NBC and working things out separately. And the Snorks was really successful, but it just wasn't as big or successful as the Smurfs. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I, I loved both of them. Uh, I watched them on Boomerang, and I know that you uh, had a hand in creating that network. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So I was one of the uh, people, uh, I was part of that team that helped create uh, the Boomerang Network. Um, 
when I was hired, <clears throat> or before I was hired, and I was just interviewing for the job, uh, Mike Lazo, who, you know, was in charge of Boomerang, Adult Swim, and, and Cartoon Network, uh, he used to receive some of my old newsletters. And when I was talking to him about the job, he said, you'd be perfect for that position because you got all those old shows and all of those old programming schedules, you know, up in your head. And, uh, you know, so I interviewed for the job and campaigned for it really hard. And they hired me. And um, we came up with, you know, the type of formats uh, that Boomerang should have. And so in the beginning, it was like an eight-hour schedule that repeated like three times and um and then eventually you know we created like a real truly 24-hour schedule but uh it was a lot of fun to put together it was pretty exciting and and we had like this official launch party where you know like a button was pushed and the <laughs> was on the it was awesome. yes that's awesome yeah i didn't know that uh that mike was over all three of those i thought he was only exclusively over Adult Swim, because I know he was the one who actually got Adult Swim that went to the execs and was like, hey, there's this block for our programming here. So I didn't know he did all three. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. He split his time between Cartoon and Adult Swim, but then eventually, you know, he took Adult Swim on, you know, full time. And, and I think it was probably, you know, a great career move for him because now you can focus squarely on Adult Swim, and, you know, Adult Swim became the number one adult network as a result. Oh, yeah. I remember, like, when I was a kid, like, it was one of those originally, it started out as the, I gotta wait for my parents to go to sleep to sneak in and watch Adult Swim, because I'm kind of in that age range, I'm like 25, almost 26, kind of, when it started, I was about five or six, and, uh, so how was that for you, seeing it go from this sort of just the what is the right term? Seeing it go from this alternative network to seeing it grow into this, what you thought about when you first came up, like when y'all first thought about the idea of Adult Swim, seeing it go from this alternative to this thing that is now the biggest adult network, like you said. I, I thought it was really cool because, you know, there was so many, you know, great creators that they, you know, that Adult Swim was working with. And it was definitely different and edgy and, you know, Adult Swim sort of had a, a network and a language all of its own. And, um, you know, at, at, in the early days, you know, we really didn't know that it was going to blow up as big as it did. So it was a nice surprise. And, you know, once we started getting, you know, um, other programming, you know, whether it be acquisitions or uh, a bigger budget to create new original series, um, you know, Adult Swim developed its own unique voice. So it was pretty cool to see and to witness. And by the time I got there, you know, it was like going, you know, full steam ahead. And one of the reasons um, I made the transition from Cartoon to Adult Swim was because they needed someone in the building on a full-time basis. Um, prior to that, uh, scheduling for Adult Swim, at least on the promo and packaging side, which is what I do, um, was being divided, was being um, one person did cartoon and that same person did Adult Swim. And one of the things that Lazo wanted and requested, he says, I need a full-time person that's in the building. And this part-time, you know, half the job is split with cartoon and the other half is split with Adult Swim, um, wasn't working. Because once I got over 
to Adult Swim, one of the first things that Lazo told me was that, you know, they didn't send a lot of email messages. You know, if something needed to change or something needed to happen, it was usually a visit from him. And so uh, they needed someone uh, to be physically sitting in the building at the time. And it was a, a great opportunity for me. It was the right career move at the right time. And uh, I'm just eternally happy and blessed to uh, be working there. Awesome. So about this time, what? because uh, I know the company started in 2001. What uh, years were you there? Or what year did you start at Adult Swim? Um, I started at Adult Swim at the end of 2009. So 2009, around November, I was training, but I was still sitting on the cartoon side. And my manager, uh, a really nice guy named Ryan Adams, you know, didn't want me to even go sit in the Adult Swim building until I was fully trained up, you know. So that whole process took a while. But once I was totally trained and good and ready to go, um, I went over there in 2010 and started doing my thing. Awesome. I know uh, the location for the Adult Swim building is on William Street in Atlanta. Is the Cartoon Network, Is that where is that building at? I know they have the one place in the CNN Center, or is it at a separate location? Okay, so, yes, you're correct. The Adult Swim building is on William Street, but directly across from William Street, if you cross over I-75, um, a Cartoon Network's offices are right there. So oh, cool. it's like on Techwood between 10th and uh, 14th Street. Okay, is it all, I think it's right there with like all the CW and the Turner Broadcasting signs and things. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, so you can actually see that building if you're driving down I-75 South because all the logos for all the uh, networks are there, you know, Cartoon Network. Oh, yeah. So right. me and my girlfriend for our vacation went to the aquarium and stuff, and we went down William Street, and I didn't realize it till we went down. I was like, oh, William Street, click. And then she was like, Wait, what? I was like, we're about to pass the Cartoon Network building or the Adult Swim building. Look to your look to your right, and then all you saw was it said Cartoon Network with the little characters and stuff. And I was like, that's the actual building on William Street. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you can see like if you, there's a wall before you get to the building. Well, all of our characters, you know, um, every show that has ever aired on Adult Swim is featured like in this long wall, like a mural. And then a uh, part of that continues when you come into the adult building and go up the driveway. Uh, the mural continues with all the shows that have ever aired on Adult Swim. And so um, I wouldn't say that it's a tourist spot, but for a lot of fans, um, if they know the building is there, they will come and take pictures in front of the building or in front of some of the characters that are featured on the wall. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, definitely. She was like, when we come back, we definitely have to go to the building. I was like, I've heard they. Have, I don't know if you got. Somebody said that you guys do tours of the building as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all, all do tours. I've I've given tours in that building. Awesome. It's, it's a lot to see and it's pretty interesting. And um, the tours can last like you know anywhere from ten to twenty minutes. And uh, it's very unique and eclectic. And it's not like any office building you have ever worked in. You know, um, it's it's and that and that is by. That is done on purpose by design, you know. That's, you know, that's uh, how Lazo wanted things to be. Um, it was his, you know, uh, the Adult Swim environment and working area is was, in my opinion, I think one of the best. 
there. I can say that uh, it's definitely one of the best. Um, and, you know, that means everything. I mean, you know, when the environment is set up in a certain way, from a creative standpoint, it just makes your job a lot easier to do. And people are a lot more chill, and it becomes all about the work. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's great to be in that type of environment because it doesn't always happen. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's something uh, me and my buddy were talking about. That's one question I actually had on my list was, how is it working at Adult Swim? Because we've seen pictures of the inside. I'm like, dude, that's going to be awesome to work in that building. <laughs> yes, I tell you, when I first got over there, you know, coming from Cartoon and Boomerang, I didn't know what to think. I looked around and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know. But I wasn't really concerned about the atmosphere that much. I was more concerned about, okay, I got to, like, get this job nailed down. You know what I mean? Yeah. For me, it was all about the work. And I remember one of my colleagues <laughs> said to me, after I had been there for about a year, you know, he said to me, Mark, we were a little worried about you when you first got here from, um, you, know, the tech, you know, the main campus. And I said, why? And he says, well, at Adult Swim, you know, we're not as, as sociable as they are across the street. And I said, well, for me, it was all about the work first, you know, as opposed to, you know, socializing and going to lunch with people. You know, like I said, I was all about getting the job done and nailed down so that I'm comfortable with it. And, um, and I said, actually, this atmosphere works you know, great for me, you know, so, um, so it's just kind of funny how, you know, kind of checking me out and I didn't know that and just seeing <laughs> how I was going to fit in. But then there was an editor, uh, who I'm really good friends with now. And we joke about this all the time, but he would walk past my office and look at me like I was like this company mole, you know, like, okay, who are you really? And how did you get that job? And why are you singing it, sitting in that office? And it was so funny. It was so funny. And, um, you know, once I got to know him, I realized that he gave everybody that look. <laughs> it had nothing to do with me personally, but I always thought it was uh, kind of funny. And it's always something that I, you know, I still laugh about. So it was sort of, they were like, you're the censor kids side of things and are you going to handle be able to handle all the the dick and fart joke side of this network <laughs> exactly exactly like basically are you going to fit in uh. you know work in with adult swim that's basically <laughs> what it was you know because it is a little different and i know that you know a lot of us a lot of the people that came over from the cartoon side, so you have people that have worked at Adult Swim like their whole careers. They haven't worked at Cartoon Network or Boom. And then you have someone like myself who's worked for all three brands. And um, I think that it's good that I did because it kind of gives me a perspective on each different working environment. And I think it makes you a lot more... Um, it, it makes it easier for you to adjust if necessary, you know, depending on where you're working and, and you know, what the environment is, is like. So, awesome, awesome. Now, I know you're a writer um, as well. 
besides just the books, did you what shows did you work on or saw the process of since you've been with Cartoon Network and Adult Swim? Okay, on the cartoon side, um, I worked with a lot of the Cartoon Network originals like Dexter's Lab, Ed, Ed and Eddie, Courage the Cowardly Dog, uh, Justice League, um, Samurai Jack, um, uh, all of those, you know, helping to plan the uh, programming strategy for those, uh, for those different uh, programs. Uh, one of the last things that I did for Cartoon before I made the transition over to Adult Swim, which was something, there's two things I'm really particularly proud of before I made the transition. Um, for New Year's Eve during, I believe during January, you know, January 2007 on New Year's Day, we, uh, I planned, I started planning it with a colleague named Jeff Adams who ended up um, moving out to the West Coast. And so I had to do the whole thing by myself. And while I was at Cartoon Network, you had, I had like, I had coworkers who were always allowed to do Looney Tunes cartoons or schedule them. And I, I never could get a hold of those cartoons to schedule. And so, um, I finally got my chance to schedule this Looney Tunes marathon and it was like the best of the best <laughs> of the best. And I freaking pushed the format limits to fit as many cartoons in as possible, you know, without breaking cable. And, um, um, it, it was like, and we didn't promote it. It was just a, an ambush. It kind of surprised viewers <laughs> with this, you know, this long Looney Tunes marathon. And finally I got to, you know, schedule Looney Tunes and it was like a really awesome marathon of some of the best Looney Tunes cartoons from the beginning. And so that was a good one. And then we wanted to give the original Powerpuff Girls series a final send off. And so uh, I came up with my 10 best episodes, which I think were the best. You know, um, the list was sent over to Craig McCracken. And I think he made like one or two adjustments. But for the most part, my programming picks were in line with Craig McCracken's picks, who created the Powerpuff Girls. Oh, that's amazing. And so, yeah, and so like the idea was before we showed the cartoon, we would show like a text bump card, similar to the Adult Swim cards, where Craig McCracken would tell viewers why he liked this particular episode, you know? And it came together really beautifully and flawlessly. And we gave the Powerpuff Girls a really great send-off. Um, you know, we had to make room for newer shows. And so uh, yes. I thought... I, I thought it was just really cool that we did that. Now, with that, um, before we get into the ones you worked on in Adult Swim, were you a part of it? Do you know the people who were kind of the ones who brung it back years, this couple years ago? No, I wasn't. Um, you know, definitely, you know, Mike Lazo and Kim Manning, they were, you know, definitely involved. Um, are you asking, like, the creation of Adult Swim? Oh, no, the uh, bringing back the, uh, the Powerpuff Girls when they revamped it again.
it was pretty high in the millions what what those Powerpuff Girls toys did in terms oh of merchandising. Goodness. And um, so I guess a new team came in and pitched a new Powerpuff Girls series and they decided to greenlight it. And, um, you know, but other than that, that's all I know about, about that newer show. Oh, cool, um, cool. So yeah. now, what are some of the shows that you have either written for or been a programmer on for Adult Swim? Okay, so on the Adult Swim side, you know, my job is mainly, you know, promotion and packaging strategy. Yes. And so um, it's been everything from the Boondocks to Black Jesus to Rick and Morty, um, uh, any, any of the shows that have been around since 2010 onward i've had i somehow have touched in terms of promotional strategy you know how many spots should a show get like um spots per week and um uh do we want to tease the spot uh, of a particular show like so for example we have a rick and morty premiere we're going to put all the bells and whistles into that premiere and so i sit down with programming and on air and we plan the whole half hour out uh where is the text bump gonna go is the text bump going to introduce and talk about the new season of rick and morty where is the uh if we have a sneak of another show coming in do we have assets to put together a quick 15 second sneak of whatever that new show is coming in because we're going to have a lot of eyeballs on rick and morty um so everything is, is, is kind of timed out, uh, and then we sit down and we preview it and we watch it, and anything we don't like or anything that we need that needs changing, it happens then and there, and then we might watch it again just to make sure everything is good. Uh, so yeah, so like when I first started, um, Adult Swim didn't do any um, previews. We would, you know, schedule the show, I'd make sure that all my promos are in there, and, and that was that. But we had, like, a really high-profile project. Um, it was called The Greatest Event in Television History. So we did three of them. Well, we did three different reenactments. Um, and did, like, uh, Simon and Simon was a reenactment, which was a show that originally ran on CBS. Heart to Heart was the second reenactment. And uh, then we did uh, Too Close for Comfort. Actually, they were four. And then Bosom Buddies. And, uh, anyway, uh, so the first one, you know, we wanted to see, we wanted to see the countdown clock count out, and we wanted to see that whole half hour play out. And after we did that, um, Adult Swim was all about doing previews from then on out, you know, so, um, it was a really great process. Um, another process I created was, uh, and this is something I worked with my manager on at the time. Um, so, you know, like the promos that say next week on the boondocks, that promo would usually air after a text bump. And so sometimes people would stick around for the text bump. And sometimes they change the channel. And I suggested, why don't we put the next week on promo before the text bump? So as soon as the credits roll, you would see next week on the boondocks or next week on Robot Chicken. And this way they would capture it. And then the text bump would air, you know? So I had yes. to sort of yes. sell the text bump team on this new strategy 
but Lazo was on board with it and said, let's do it. You know, so we started doing that as well. And um, so that was the other thing, too, because they had like a full time person like myself working on the promo and packaging strategy. I was able to um, implement some new, you know, promotional strategy for Adult Swim. Awesome. I think that's actually how I came to watch one of the shows. I was watching Rick and Morty. And so just as a viewer for it, what you're doing is working. <laughs> uh, I was watching Rick and Morty and I saw a preview for your pretty face is going to hell. And I was like, this seems like my kind of comment. I was like, let me put this in my phone. I'm going to look this up after this episode. <laughs> and I've watched it all the way till season four. And I'm hoping that we get another season because I, I absolutely love that show. Let me tell you something. Uh, the show was created by uh, Chris Kelly and Dave Willis. And, um, you know, really, really nice guys. I actually had a cameo uh, on Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell. Oh. Um, <laughs> so there was, a, there was a newspaper clipping of someone going to jail. And I played one of the police officers taking this character to jail. And that's it. Like, there's no video of me. I just appear in a newspaper clipping for like a quick four seconds. Oh, I was going to say, if I find the clip, I'll put it in the notes. <laughs> right, right, right. Maybe I could, uh, let's see if I could uh, get that information for you. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, so that's the other thing, too. You know, um, Adult Swim is, is, is like a real community. You know, um, there was another special that was done um, in the building, animation. I mean, some of the animation was farmed out to another Atlanta studio, but like, I think everybody in the building had somehow touched the special. Either they contributed animation or they did a voiceover or something like that. And, um, you know, so it's sort of unique because a lot of things like that don't usually happen at some of the other networks, you know, where you can get everyone involved, but. Adult Swim also has, you know, programming, promotion, and part of the in-house studio, I mean, in one building. So that's another unique uh, aspect of Adult Swim, whereas at other networks, usually programming is in one city and the studios are in another city. Yes. So. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah. Now, one thing for, since you are the promotional side, I don't know if you had anything to do with it. Were you uh, part of the, when they changed the Cartoon Network logo from the checkerboard to just the CN, or? No, I had nothing to do with that. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Yeah, Um, and that's usually like a marketing decision. Oh, okay. That happens. Yeah, so uh, it's it's not in, under, it's not in my wheelhouse at all. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm definitely a child of the Checkerboard Cartoon Network look. <laughs> yeah, I was a fan of the Checkerboards, too. You know, like, when Cartoon Network first came out, you know, like a lot of new cable uh, channels, you know, wasn't available every year, everywhere. And I remember, I wasn't working for the network at the time, but I was already, like, talking to those guys because they were getting my newsletter. So my newsletter was something I sent out Every month, I did it for five years, and I sent it to Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, Disney, DC Comics, Marvel Comics, anyone who touched kids' content. And that's how I got, that's how I made it, you know, work my way into the industry, because people liked what they were reading. 
Yeah. And then after I was at the network for a while, I decided to compile all those newsletters and put them in my book. And then I did, you know, like up-to-date commentary because the newsletters were like written in the 1990s and I had worked at Cartoon and Adult Swim for a long time and so much in the industry had changed. And one of those changes that I do mention in my book is um, the fact that we dealt with so much tape. Like the first job I had uh, at Turner was I worked in a tape library. So it was my job to pull the tapes for Cartoon Network and Cartoon Network Latin America so that they could, you know, create the promotions, you know, for whatever was going on, Scooby-Doo Marathon or Dexter Marathon. Um, so, uh, and you know, at the time, and I still think this stands, Turner had the world's largest animation library. Um, so, uh, that was my first job, but it was all about tapes or tapes breaking or replacing tapes. And now everything is digital. You don't got to worry about tapes anymore. And that was an interesting transition. You know, like the transition going from one to the other was, was not that easy. And it took a lot of patience and, um, you know, people adding their voices into how things can be better. Yes. Um, so, yes. So, uh, so that's interesting. And, you know, like, uh, we had a, a manufacturer that was, like, dedicated to supplying tapes to our company. And I'm not going to name who the manufacturer was. They're still in business. But they, I remember when I worked in a tape library, they would take my manager to lunch and wine her <laughs> and dine her just to keep that contract going, you know? It was just pretty funny, but... But digital just freed up so much. It just made things so much easier. And um, it also, because, you know, a lot of times, I tell you something, things used to go missing a lot with tapes. Oh, you know, or, or um, like uh, that movie Space Jam with Michael Jordan. Oh, yes. That's a big one of my Pinnacles of the Kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the movie was supposed to air on TNT one weekend. And the Friday before the premiere date, the movie went missing. Oh, my gosh. And so there was this scramble to get another copy, you know, to the company. And um, so it was like stuff like that. Not that, not that files can't be um, compromised either. But um, when Cartoon Network started airing Star Wars Clone Wars, uh, Lucas would only deliver a digital file to us. That that show didn't have any tape oh at my all. Gosh. Because Lucas was afraid that, you know, it would there, it, there would be a leak. Oh, yeah, they're very protective. I've heard they're very protective of their stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah. But I think it was a good thing, and I think, um, you know, it definitely was, you know, seeing how those Star Wars Clone Wars episodes were delivered was like uh, looking into the future of of future, you know, show deliveries. And I just thought it was just really smart. And uh, there was a lot of security around that delivery of that series. But there's a lot of security around things right now. You know, um, there's a lot of watermarking going on and, and, you know, to prevent leaks. Because, you know, unfortunately, um, that's part of the TV business too, or the cable business. You know, you don't want people leaking your premiere of your high profile premiere. So that's something that, um, I think, um, you know, everyone working in the industry has been really vi- vigilant, 
you know, um, about protecting their assets. Yes. Now, with the, the, the animation library, like with the with the reels and stuff, did you ever get to see, like, of the actual reel of, like, any Chuck Jones or the old Looney Tune like, reels? And so how was that yeah. for you seeing those original Chuck Jones drawings or anything like that? Well, um, we didn't have, like, uh, the original cells or the drawings. We just had... So when Ted Turner bought the library, bought the Hanna-Barbera library and the, um, you know, the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes library, I mean, they just basically sent tapes over. And some of them were, like, the one-inch reels, you know, um, and it would usually have, have a VHS matching copy with time code so that the editor knew where he could make his cuts. And then we, then the other tapes were like D2 tapes, which I'm pretty, I'm not sure they even make those anymore. And uh, so when someone requested a tape for me, they got a D2 with a VHS matching copy or a one-inch reel and, and a VHS matching copy. Sometimes, you know, the editors didn't want to deal with the old one-inch reels because that meant older equipment and that meant that your editing session might go a little long. But at, but there were some instances where that's all we had to deal with. But uh, uh, as far as, like, original cells, I mean, there were things that we had around the office, you know, um, that would donate it to the Cartoon Network office. But in terms of, uh, like, one day, someone was walking around with a drawing of Space Ghost, and it featured Space Ghost with his mask off and it showed how he looked with his mask off which was pretty cool you that, know that's awesome. so that was one yes yeah, so that was one thing i remember seeing um when i joined the programming department uh as a gift we all got animation cells of you know the powerpuff girls i got one signed by craig mccracken oh, uh, so girls i have a dexter i have a johnny bravo not signed by uh, Van Partible, but Van Partible and I became real buddies. And he, there is a, uh, he endorsed my book on the cover. Um, there's an endorsement from Van. And thanks to Van Partible, like anytime I needed inside old school Hanna-Barbera information, you know, he would provide it to me. Because, you know, at one point, Van Partible was going to write a Cartoon Network book because he worked at Hanna-Barbera and he was there for the transition to Cartoon Network Studios. And so I was bugging him about all these old school questions. And he says, you know what? You need to give this guy, Jerry Eisenberg, a call. And Jerry Eisenberg is an old school Hanna-Barbera animator, artist. And he says he's, he's semi-retired, but he's in the studios today. And I called up Jerry, and Jerry gave me all of this insights of how Josie and the Pussycats, for example, became a series through the Hanna-Barbera studios. So it's, it's like cool stuff like that. That is, that is awesome. And I know yourself, like you had told me in the chat that you were a historian of cartoons since the age of nine. Um, so how did, yeah. so how did that start your obsession with, was it just, you woke up as like Saturday mornings or. Okay. Okay. It was transitional. All right. So <laughs> the first show, so it was, it was kind of like all these little shocking moments Saturday morning as a as a little kid and as a viewer like just being totally amazed about something um so for example uh I was I when I was a kid I thought I was watching 
a Superman cartoon, and I guess I was around four or five years old, I can't remember, but I remember I was watching this, what I thought was a Superman cartoon, and then the next thing you know, The Flash and Hawkman and Green Lantern and The Atom show up, and it's the Justice League of America, and I was like, oh, wow, like, I was not expecting those heroes to join Superman in a cartoon. It was a complete shock to me. And I got so excited. And that was my introduction to the DC Universe. All right? And so I was, like, on board. And what I didn't realize was that I was watching the Superman, Aquaman, Hour of Adventure. And it featured, like, all these, most of, you know, DC's popular heroes. You know? And uh, so it was pretty cool. Same year, same network, uh, Space Ghost also had these crossover adventures with the other Hanna-Barbera superheroes, like including a hero named Mitor and um, the Herculoids, which was like sort of like Tarzan and Jane and his son in space, but they got all these cool animals that beat everyone's butts when necessary. <laughs> and and uh, so there were crossover episodes with, with them as well. And uh, and again, I was shocked because I didn't realize that all these characters had separate shows on the same network, but I didn't realize that they were in the same universe. So this happened like in one television season. And then I met this kid named Gerald in day camp and Gerald was, he sort of like, and I talk about this in the book, he was sort of my Yoda, you know, like this kid who was the same age as me was able, he knew who all the players were on Saturday morning, and he could predict what studios were going to make what for the coming season. And I'm just like, how do you know that? How can you do that? <laughs> and he told me about Josie and the Pussycats. He said, they're going to make a cartoon out of that. You watch and see. He said, they've already done the Archies, and they've already done Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and Josie is next, because that was like the next popular comic book part of that Archie universe. And when I watched the first episode of Josie and the Pussycats, I thought it was going to be crap. You know? Yeah. Because I didn't think that the, I didn't think that the comic book was was strong enough to be a Saturday morning show. I mean, I thought about this as a little kid. The Archies had music. Sabrina had magic. Josie was a comic book that was primarily marketed to girls. And I kind of thought it thought of it as sort of third or fourth tier, you know, not yeah. really yeah. out there. Well, 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 that I get the biggest shock, you know. And um, I was so blown away by the creative job that Hanna Barbera did on that series that that was the show that really pushed me from viewer to obsessive fan. And I started reading the credits. And all at the same time, Archie Comics published a comic where Josie and the Pussycats visit the Hanna-Barbera Studios. So I finally got to see some of the people, what they actually look like behind the scenes, including Joe Ruby and Ken Spears. Ken Spears um, is a guy that you know, co-created Scooby-Doo with Joe Ruby. And Ken Spears, I used to have email correspondence with him for a long time. He also used to give me a lot of great inside information. But they're in there. William Hanna and Joseph Barbera, of course. Um, 
one of the production designers named Iwu uh, Takamoto. He's in the book. And uh, one, another animator as well. And uh, it is like the coolest thing. And they take you through the entire animation process. So the book hit like in August. So I got real excited. And then the animated series, um, you know, showed up in September. But what was in the comic book, as you know, that was supposed to be like the first episode, was was crafted mainly after the comic after the comic book store, you know, stories with, you know, going to the high school dance and, you know, all the teenage stuff. And then what Hanna-Barbera actually did with the series, they basically took those characters and brought them into Hanna-Barbera's world, which was sort of risky. So it was a world of supervillains, espionage, and action. And that's what blew me away because I didn't think that in a million years that show was going to have that type of premise. And they brought in really cool villains, too, like familiar villains like Dr. Nemo from 2000 Leagues Under the Sea and the Invisible Man and a James Bond knockoff villain, you know? like um, So it was it was pretty cool. Um, you know, so it was almost like Johnny Quest, in a way. They were reluctant heroes who ended up in the right place at the right time to save the day and it gets mistaken Josie always gets mistaken for being like Scooby-Doo but to me the two shows are have nothing to do with each other at all because on Josie and the Pussycats they're battling super villains where Scooby and his friends are chasing after people running around in a ghost costume yes pretty yes. much <laughs> and, and someone the villains actually try to kill the Pussycats almost in every other episode so that's also a big difference too you know but Anyway, that was the show. And then um, there was a live action series uh, called Shazam, you know, based on Captain Marvel. Um, That show was really great as well. And I loved that show so much, I actually sent a fan letter to the studio. And uh, they sent me an autographed picture, which I still have. And uh, the letter I don't have anymore because one of my friends got jealous that a studio actually sent me the letter (laughs) and stole it. From but it doesn't matter because I ended up, you know, meeting some of the people that worked on that show behind the scenes as well. And uh, so that's always a cool thing, too. And I think, you know, one of the blessings about having this job is that I got to meet a lot of the, not only did I get to program a lot of the shows that I watched as a kid, but I also got to meet a lot of the people that worked on the show behind the scenes. You know, like one year I was at uh, Comic-Con in San Diego, and Lou Scheimer, who was the executive producer of He-Man and Fat Albert and the Archies, you know, we were staying at the same hotel, and I had met him before, but we didn't know, he didn't know I was going to be there, I didn't know he was going to be there, and so we had some really nice meetups and conversations, and we were able to catch up. So that was cool. So stuff like that that happens. That that's, that's awesome. Nice. Like it's same with me, like with voiceover for voice acting because I've I'm actually in the process of trying to get into the business, uh, and I just love voiceover and like I guess for you it's same with the animation. It's just as a kid you don't realize the what all goes into the animation or just the voices and when you find that out like it's just so cool. Like I met Rob Paulson for the first time at Dragon Con, and I talked to him and I was like just watching you on. And Jimmy Neutron or this, I was like, and just meeting you, just seeing the guy that was my childhood was just awesome. It was just, I feel like, wait, he just does a voice. I'm like, it's more than just a voice. This is 
you wouldn't have the cartoon if it wasn't for them. Right, right, right. You can't take a voiceover person for granted at all. They put a lot into it. They bring so much of those characters to life. And sometimes casting of the right voiceover person, you know, could, you know, it can make or break your project. You know, um, there was one child that will go nameless. And uh, the premise of the series was pretty good, but the voiceover person, the main character, oh my gosh, it was such a bad choice. And when the show was going down in flames, you know, that's what a lot of people said. They just couldn't take the lead character. Her voice was just too annoying. So it's something that I've seen happen, you know. Um, so. Oh yeah, my best friend said that with a couple games. He's like, I love the game series, but I can't play this another game. He's like, I just can't get over the fact that it's just it's just terrible voiceover. I can't. He's like, I know that sounds horrible, but he's like, I just I can't focus. It takes me out of the the universe of the game when just that acting is just ah terrible. Yeah, sometimes I feel that way about comic books too. You know, like if the artist changes and it's art that I'm not really into, can get into, I'm like, oh well, I'm not reading this anymore. Because the art is just, if the art is something that I don't like personally, it's too much of a distraction, you know? And uh, I'm reading the words in the comic. I mean, the, the it might be um, the words might be brilliant, but, you know, if the art is just, you know, annoying, um, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Because, <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why I shouldn't, you can cut this part out too, is because... I used to be that way, if I didn't particularly like, but now I don't really care. Now, in, in terms of cartoons, I don't really care um, about the animation, you know, as long as the content is good. And uh, so that's like one of my pet peeves, because what, what animation purists don't understand is that it's about the content. So there is this show called The Marvel Superheroes that came out in 1966. And the budget was about 28000 per episode. And the budget in 1966, the shows were going for about 45000 an episode. And, mm. you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, there's not a lot of animation in that show. But people, fans, love that show because it was the closest thing to a Marvel comic book that was being animated. And the voice work and the music and the backgrounds, all the other elements that go into a cartoon were awesome. You know, it's not just about the animation and, you know, <laughs> um, frames per minute. You know what I mean? So, um, so I'm not, I'm not really a snobby animation fan at all. I, I, it has to, the content has to be good and content is king. And the other thing I like to emphasize, um, one of the things that I do lecture about on the college level is that um, I take my hat off to the guys that had to do animation in the 60s to the 1990s because they had the worst schedules. They had, you know, uh, they didn't have a budget for full animation. And then it was like censorship all over the place. I mean, one of the things that Dan and I talk about in our podcast is like there's a constant villain in children's animation, and that was action for children's television. And some of the laws that they helped enact through the FCC are still around, you know? And I 
some of these laws are kind of uh, antiquated. So, for example, every every kids network has to let the viewer know that they're going to a commercial break. You know, we'll be back after these messages, right? That was enacted by Action for Children's Television, and at the time, before there was twenty four hour kids networks, the um, you know, like so you're at a television network and you have three hours of Saturday morning or three hours of, you know, maybe an afternoon block, right? That's not so much. Sure, I can put a, we'll be back after these messages and back to the show. But to have to do that for 24 hours? And you mean to tell me that the kids' audience today who are teaching their parents how to use their iPhones, they don't know the difference between content and a commercial break? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's but crazy. Because, but because it's an FCC rule, you would need the, the kids industry to come together and go to Washington and lobby for that rule to be relaxed. Now, I think for little, little kids, great. They need to know the difference between content and commercials. You know, like for preschool. But for kids that are a little bit older, closer to... 7, 8, or 10 and 11, they know the difference. And I feel like they'll never get rid of the rules completely, but I feel like at this point in time, the rules should be relaxed, you know? Yes, and with that, if I'm correct on the organization, that's the one where it's like the, uh, what is the term that I want to use for this? The super conservative uh, ladies that are like, I don't want my children to see this or they shouldn't brainwash the kids. <laughs> right, right. I mean, think about it. Consider this. This group called Action for Children's Television, they never worked in television a day in their lives. But at one point, the networks had to send them the scripts to, you know, to look over. And then they would send their notes back. And then, they, and then the scripts would go to S&P you know, standards and practices for them to look over things. And by the time you look, everything has changed. I'll give you a good a good example. So there was a Josie and the Pussycats episodes where they're running from the villain, which is in every episode. And the original action called for Sebastian the Cat to hide in a pot. Someone from Action Children's Television said, I think a kid, if a kid sees that a cat is hiding in a pot, I think that somebody might put their pet cat in a pot. And so they wanted the same cut. And the final result is, all right, right? So you see the villains chasing Josie and her friends into into the kitchen. And then they cut to the kitchen, and you see the villain run in, and he's looking around, like, where did everybody go? And all of a sudden, the cat is already, the cat jumps out of the pot. So you never saw the cat go in the pot. But when they get busted in the kitchen, you see him jump out and the chase continues. So that's how they got around it, you know, by eliminating the action of, of the cat actually going in the pot. And, you know, none of this makes any sense at all because, first of all, if you have little kids, they can even be near the stove, you know, as a parent. Oh, you know, yeah. That's one of the things. Oh, yeah. You know, you teach your kids, stay away from the stove. The stove is hot and dangerous, you know? And I just don't think any kid would attempt to try to put their pet cat in a, in a, in a pot. 
unless you're unless you're like Jeffrey Dahmer or a kid who's a serial killer, I don't think you're gonna mutilate your cat. <laughs> Which apparently that's a thing now that they say if if your child has these tendencies with these animals, get them tested for being a serial killer. <laughs> it would be the same as like if I don't know if I think I've seen it before I may have just dreamt of something about like a, a scene where like a kid they're playing hide and seek and gets in the dryer and I'm like they can do that because I'm pretty sure no kid knows to get in the dryer and turn it on <laughs> right right well you know it's kind of funny you mentioned that because when my son was younger uh, this kid spent the night over over our house and the two of them ended up in the dryer you know, and like to this day, I'm just like, how did they even fit in there? You know, like I like I know what happened, but but I always I always blame it. I always blame the other kid, you know, because my son had never done that before. This kid, yes. I blame this kid, you know, but yeah, it's like little things like that, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Same with the which you showed your friend. Um, getting you into the cartoon stuff, that's actually how it was for my best friend and me, how he got me into, like, Star Wars and, like, a lot of the stuff that I are pinnacle to who I am now. It was kind of like, I've seen these things, and he's like, let me introduce you to this world of things. And, like, he knew all the facts of the Star Wars movies, and we just, one weekend, he's like, okay, you're here from Saturday to morning because it's Labor Day, so we got all the way to Monday. We're going to binge watch these cartoons and movies so we can talk about this stuff. And the guy wanted to know if the six 
$6 million man was going to be renewed. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's definitely going to be renewed, you know? And so, like, like I remember walking by, and they said, see that guy? He knows everything that's going on in TV. He can tell you if your show's going to live or die. And I just thought it was so great, you know uh, what I mean? Because I didn't, I just couldn't shut up about it. But I didn't know that people who really wanted to know this stuff. You know, so I was kind of giving my friends at school a sort of inside that they didn't have. Yeah, that's awesome. You mean talking about like with the paper trail and stuff? I know there's a story with Bob Bergen, uh, he, the voice actor. If you know who that is, uh, he does. He's the one who does Porky Pig now, and he's been doing it since uh, Mel died. And he has a story that he tells. He has the original recording that his mom kept. That he had seen that Mel was in. He tried to call Mel uh, Mel Blank, and there he saw he knew he called all the Mel Blanks in the phone book because he lived in L.A. at the time and. He couldn't get anybody, and then he said, I remembered, he said his wife's name in an interview or something, so he looked, and he finally called on it, and they answered, and he actually got to talk for to Mel Blank uh, on the phone for like five minutes, because he went through each person for like six days and just called him, hey, is this the household of Mel Blank? Is this the household? And so he's a 14-year-old Bob Bergen before he actually became Bob Bergen, talking to Mel Blank about voices and voice acting. And it wasn't going in the garbage, it was actually going to the person. 
you know, so I was able to get to someone in the industry and, you know, get some help. And, and like with Cartoon Network, Cartoon Network was just starting and Mike Lazo was opening up my newsletters and sending it around as distribution to people to educate them. And uh, when I started at the network, I actually had people coming to me and saying, well, I used to read your newsletter back in the day. I'm so glad you're on board and you're hired. And, you know, it was just like a really great feeling. It made me feel wonderful to know that all that was going on behind the scenes without my knowledge, you know, and that people really liked what they were reading. Oh, so you sort of basically had your resume before you sent in your resume. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, so like, so, we don't know who this guy is, but we need to get him on board. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But, you know, um, one of the things that Mike Lazo, because Mike Lazo also used, used to give tours at Adult Swim, and he always liked bringing people by my office and telling them my story about how I sent in a newsletter and how I worked with them one time, and they didn't have any job openings, but I took the initiatives and I moved down to Atlanta and I got a job working in the library and I didn't even tell them I was working there. And I did a good job in the library and then they hired me on and they said that one of the things he said he always respected about me was that I never sweated him for a job. He said I earned I earned the position to work with the network by, you know, taking the initiative to move, getting a job, at another department, proving myself there, and then applying like any other employee, you know? So, because he said when he, when Mike Lazo was president of Adult Swim, he said he used to get a resume every day for people just reaching out to him and saying, hey, hire me, hire me, you know? Yeah. And, um, and he said he always respected the fact that I got a job and didn't tell them I was working there, but was able to, you know, um, do a great job and, and impress people, you know, because that's the other thing too, you know, I mean, they knew me and they knew that I knew a lot of cartoon information, but they didn't know my work ethic. So. Yeah. They didn't just like, Oh, we think he'd be good for the job. You actually showed them like, I'll show you. I'm, I can work my way. You don't have to bring me in on your level. I'll work my way to you so you can see what I do. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I always thought that was like a, pretty cool and you know when Lazo retired and left the company you know he said any issues you have any problems call me you know so it's good to know that I have that open communication with him as well now that you know he's, awesome. he's I didn't even know he had uh, is, so I didn't even know he had left the has he been replaced with somebody over at Adult Swim or yes yes and so uh, the person running Adult Swim is a gentleman named Michael Lean you know who have been our he Michael was our um, oh my gosh he was the uh, CMO for the company chief marketing officer but oh, now he's the president of Adult Swim. Awesome, so, awesome. Uh, yeah, Michael's a good guy too. Awesome, cool. Now I know you have I don't know if it was on another podcast or an interview that uh, back when you started in the animation industry you actually worked with like Seth MacFarlane. Is there anybody him or anybody else that you work with that are at the time, weren't big names, but are now recognizable names? Oh, I think <laughs> the Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> That's like one of my favorite stories, because I always say to myself, if I had stayed in contact with him and been a friend, who knows how different my career would <laughs> Not that I didn't do too badly, but, you know. But I think Seth is probably the only one. Um, 
you know, that I met back in the day that, you know, really blew up. Um, there may be one or two other people, but I just can't think of them right now. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I heard that. I was like, I know you're like, man, if I got to work on Family Guy or one of these other shows. <laughs> Which, as a as a nerd yourself, how did you feel about his, his Star Trek, quote-unquote Star Trek series, The Orville? <laughs> I love that show. I love. I don't. I don't. I'm, I was a little sad that it's moving to Hulu because I don't have Hulu. But um, I liked it because I thought it was like you can tell that he's definitely a fan of Star Trek, and um, you know. But it had the right balance of comedy and drama, and you know, it's like you know, Star Trek has been parodied so many times, and you know, it really is a franchise that definitely takes itself really seriously. And I think that, you know, the Orville kind of gives you the best of both worlds. You know, something, you know, like a show that doesn't really take itself so seriously, but has a lot of those science fiction stories and tropes that, you know, that fans really like. Yes, it has that feel, the Gene Roddenberry message feel, but with that sort of Seth humor that everybody has come to love. Right. Right, exactly, exactly. So um, uh, at that Tracklanta uh, convention I was doing, I, I, I'm pretty sure there was an Orville panel. And I remember, not I know, not necessarily for 2019, but maybe for 2017 or 2018, uh, the name of the panel <laughs> was, let's talk about the brand new Star Trek show, The Orville. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I've heard so many people say it's uh, it's the truck we wanted, but not the one we got. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, some of the storylines are still kind of progressive. You know, the fact that there's an alien on the ship that mates only with other men. And if the man mates with a girl, it's looked upon as... You know, oh, how could you? you oh, yeah. Almost like the whole gay thing, but everything in reverse. Yeah, that so. that whole episode was amazing, especially like with the, about the gender thing with their baby was just like, that was a great way to, that message that they were putting for us. I love those episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, it's just one of those things. And it was great, uh, too, with especially like how they did with the Klingons in the original Star Trek, that the actors were portrayed by people of color as well, which added another element to that as well. You know, talking about things that don't get talked about a lot that need to be talked about. And that's one thing that I loved about Star Trek and with the Orville coming back to that, that they used these aliens to show us messages that, without, you know, causing a controversy, showing these, like, look how stupid this is. Look, why can't we be like this is, there's no reason for that. Like, I always go back to the episode with the, uh, with Frank Gorshin and, I can't remember the other actor's name, with the half white, half black episode. That show, and there's a, uh, Sulu, Mr. Dorstakai talked about it. He's like, yeah, shows you how, the one on the right, I think he made a meme about it. It's like, the one on the right thinks he's more superior than the one on the left. What do you think? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there is a... Um, so, one of the things I like about the Superman Aquaman Hour Adventure, one of the things I'm realizing more and more as I watch these cartoons is that a lot of these cartoons were somewhat subversive. 
you know, um, for example, there's a Justice League cartoon uh, where you have a black race fighting against a black race, and the Justice League is there to stop them from destroying each other, and that's what the message is, but no one ever mentions in the episode that it's a white race battling a black race, you yes. know, and this is in 1967, and I think it's pretty progressive, but the fact that they don't ever mention color, you know, I think is 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 pretty cool that they don't. But I also kind of feel like the the whole episode is somewhat subversive in 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 how they're presenting. You know, yeah, the story. You know what I mean? I'm just like, wow, they kind of stuck that one in. You know what I mean? And uh, there is a uh, uh, the original Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which came out in 1969. That show is like super subversive all over the place. Because what I love about that cartoon, I like that 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 filmation's Sabrina version is really closely matches the Netflix version a lot. And the Netflix version of Sabrina kind of takes a lot from that cartoon series. What I love about the original cartoon is that you know, Sabrina is a witch and she's neither good or bad. And sometimes she has to jack up her friends because it's necessary, you know? Yes. But there, there, is, uh, there is an episode, so like in the second season, it's called Sabrina and the Groovy Ghoulies, where you meet her monster cousins, which is, you know, Frankenstein, Werewolf. And they, yes. live, in the, they live in Horrible Hall, which is this building on the outskirts of Riverdale. And and so there's an episode called The Golf Open where it appears that the faculty, the teachers at Riverdale are going to play a golf open at the same time her monster cousins are going to be there. And so she arranges for her monster cousins to be there at night and have the teachers play at the same golf uh, tournament in the daytime. And... And someone makes a crack. Yeah, it would be really unfortunate if, you know, your friends, you know, met your family, Sabrina. And she goes, yeah, it'd be kind of tragic. And she laughs about it. And, and I was like, oh, okay. So basically she's saying, I don't care. Yeah. You know, it's almost like, like in that, just by saying, yeah, it would be tragic, you know, tragic and her kind of laughing about it you know to me that's like a subtle hint that well if my monster cousins get a hold of the archies and their friends it's nothing i could do about it you know yeah. be kind of tragic or well you know but it's like little things like that that make the series um subversive or she has a cousin ambrose which is also depicted in the netflix series as well but Cousin Ambrose comes across as gay and flamboyant. And they have one where Cousin Ambrose is taking a rocket to the moon. He's wearing his space helmet and everything. But somehow, Cousin Ambrose ends up on the pointy part of the rocket. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, how phallic is that? <laughs> it's like, you know, the rocket's getting ready to make love to Cousin Ambrose. And yes. I mean, that is subversive. And then they have another episode where she summons Cousin Ambrose for help because, like, her aunts will say, don't do any good deeds, and then she'll 
you know, summon Cousin Ambrose for help. And one time she was, in an episode, she was a cheerleader, and she summoned Cousin Ambrose, and Cousin Ambrose is in drag, you know? And then one girl says, oh, so Sabrina introduces Ambrose as, as Amy, and they walk away. And these two girls have a conversation, and she goes, did you ever notice that Amy has a mustache? And the other girl says, I never noticed Amy. Like, where did she come from? And <laughs> I'm just like, really? You put him in, in a dress? And, and it was just, you know, it was supposed to be a sight gag. Yes. But again, kind of like letting viewers know that Cousin Ambrose might, you know, he might possibly be gay. <laughs> yes. You know? But the, the rocket was like the the all like the biggest giveaway. But you know, as a kid watching that, I didn't I didn't know what a phallic symbol was. Yeah, and at you that know? time, was that same organization that you guys had to deal with during around that time? Or yeah, I'm surprised yeah. there were any notes about those sort of things. <laughs> well, that is the thing. So you know, um, you know, like back in the day, there was also uh, the Hayes office that regulated the movies. That was yeah. started like after 1933, and there's a Hitchcock film called Rebecca, and supposedly there's all these lesbian um, overtones in the movie. And one of the writers is interviewed, and she goes, "Oh yeah, we snuck all that stuff in because we were trying to get away with stuff that the, that people that regulated, you know, what they can do and what they couldn't do, you know." Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is <laughs> they snuck stuff in that they figured that, that the folks that are overlooking things would miss. And so kind of here's a loophole to what they're allowing us to do. <laughs> exactly. But if you're paying attention and watching all the subtleties or paying attention to the dialogue, you might catch some of the subversiveness or some of the things that are underlying that are going on. And a lot of the guys working on Saturday morning were all about that too. You know, they were having fun, but they were sneaking in as many things as they could. Oh yeah. There's you know, a lot like with the DreamWorks stuff. They do that a lot. And it's why I love watching. I'm like, I can bear watching these movies with my nephews or my niece. I'm like, there's some jokes in here that I can get. <laughs> right. Right. You know, um, so it's just something that animators like doing and having fun with. And, and even even some of the songs, so you know, like a show like The Archies, we had a guy named Ron Dante doing the voice, who was a professional singer. Some of the songs that were being written for The Archies, it was like adult themes. You know, there wasn't, um, there's one that talks about a love triangle. And, you know, so again, Action for Children's Television, they weren't paying attention to the music lyrics. You know, there's a Josie and the Pussycat song where it, it where it's like a kiss off. It's like an ultimate kiss off song. It's called Roadrunner, and they're talking about how bad this dude is and how he's going from woman to woman and how he's no good. And they're singing about this on a kids show. So yeah. there's like lots of little things being snuck in that, as a viewer, I'm like, wow, they got away with that. I mean, like some things I caught. Like, the music parts I caught, I'm like, wow, I can't believe they're singing about that or talking about that. Yes. But, you know, as an adult, I was like, oh, my gosh. So there is a, a website called The 13th Dimension, and the guy that runs it, um, I think his name is Dan Greenfield, 
Greenfield. Uh, he talks about this Batman cartoon from the 60s. And the Joker runs for mayor. And uh, he enlists Penguin and the Riddler. And he rigs the election. And this guy, Dan Greenfield, says, this is like the most subversive cartoon from the 1960s. And then, uh, during the press, during the, uh, not the press, you know, like, uh, you know, like when they have, you know, like when you're going to announce something. What are they oh, yeah. Uh, during the press conference? I think it's the uh, State of Address, I think is what it's called. Right. Something like that. <laughs> there, there is a microphone stuck in there. You know, you can see all the the network. You know, it'll be CBS or ABC. There was there was a station stuck in the Joker's. You know, in the microphone called KKK. Oh my gosh! That was done on purpose for sure. So it's like yeah. little things that that they would sneak in. Um, that makes the cartoon interesting. And that's why, you know, going back to my earlier point about, <laughs> please edit some of the stuff out because I think sometimes they're just rambling. Oh no, that's why I, I love the story. That's why I actually, like, I like starting interviews. I'm like, let me hear the stories. I don't mind. Like I told you the timing. I was like, I had my first guess is three hours, whatever. How long you want to tell stories? I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like while people, you know, that aren't fans of limited animation, I think that they're just missing out on, some of the subversiveness of the cartoons, and that's another reason to watch, you know? But If you could bring any show bag, either Cartoon Network or Adult Swim, what would it be? Okay, if it was uh, Cartoon Network, well, if... All right, I would bring back uh, this show. There was a show back in the 70s called The Amazing Chan and the Chan Clan, and it was about Detective Charlie Chan and his, you know, nine children. And um, it was a great show. It was done by Hanna-Barbera. I would love to bring that show back and have it being done anime style. Awesome, awesome. I think that would, would really work well. Um, as far as Adult Swim goes, hmm, I'm trying to think. There was a show that really that got canceled that broke my heart. <laughs> I can't think of an Adult Swim show right at the moment. So I'll just pass on that. Okay, and then uh, one last thing uh, before you know, talk about your book and stuff. Before you go, um, what is some advice you can give to somebody who wants to get into the either what you do or just into the animation business in general? Okay, I would just say um, try to meet as many people as possible. Definitely go to that company's website and apply for jobs. Try to get as, as, as much advice as possible. When I was doing my newsletter, I wrote to everybody. I wrote to Leonard Moulton, who was at Entertainment Tonight, and asked him for advice. I, I wrote, and people, you know, were willing to write you back, or I guess now email you back. Um, you know, so, and even now, um, like people will reach out to me on LinkedIn and ask me, what did you do to get into the industry? You know, what should I be doing? How should my resume be crafted? Um, you know, do you have a reel of, of that features all your work? Because it's a very competitive market, very competitive job market, and you need to find ways to stand out, and you have to be persistent. I mean, I did that newsletter for five years, but it took me like a total of eight years to actually get into the business. So it was like a long time and a lot of patience. You know, I got little nuggets thrown at me here and there, but... 
you know, it took a while to, you know, finally get that, the, the dream job that I wanted. But I would say just be consistent. Try to meet as many people as possible that might be able to help you in your journey to, you know, reach your dreams and uh, try to be as smart, as creative as possible. And when people look up your online LinkedIn profile or Facebook, you know, try to have things there that's going to pull someone in or, you know, uh, get their attention. I, uh, one of my colleagues, former colleagues, moved out to L.A., uh, did not have a job lined up, and he really started doubting himself. And then um, after three weeks, uh, he got a call, and now he's working out there. And he said one of the things that he did was he kept his LinkedIn profile as up-to-date and as sharp as possible because job recruiters look at those things. And uh, I think it's, it's really important. But consistency and persistence is the thing. And to try to get as much information from professionals as you can because that's what I did. You know, I, have, I still have all the letters of people who wrote me and gave me advice and told me to hang in there. And what's really great about that is that some of those people I actually got to meet my professional career and to, you know, personally thank them. And one person in particular, he completely forgot that he wrote me, you know? Yeah. So for me to tell him thanks for the advice, you know, it just, he was just like, you know, really happy to hear that, you know, things worked out. Awesome. All right, you just want to, before you go, tell everybody um, there are your where they can find you and about your book and... What signed yeah. copy they can get? Yeah, all right. So uh, my book is called The Best Saturdays of Our Lives, and it talks about how Saturday morning became a, a business, a revenue-driving business, and how that led to the creation of or the proving ground for 24-hour networks. And so we go from the 60s all the way through the 1990s, which I consider the... the the last hurrah Saturday morning when they brought in the X-Men and Power Rangers. And my book can be found for a signed copy at uh, thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com or if you, don't, if you don't want to type all that in, tbsool.com and I will send you a signed copy. The book retails for $12.95 plus shipping. Uh, you can also listen to current events on the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast which is available on the ESO network, the ESO network. And uh, free episodes are also available on Apple Podcasts and uh, SoundCloud. Um, let's see, my Twitter <laughs> is Mark McTeasel, and that's Mark, M-C, T as in Tom, B as in boy, O-O-L. Um, that's my Twitter handle. You can go to my Facebook page, uh, my personal Facebook page, Mark McRae, or you can go to the Best Saturdays of Our Lives Facebook page and get updates there. And um, I think that's it. All right. I just want to thank you again for coming on. And we always say here, if you want to say the intro. Enjoy the madness. Thanks again um, for having me here and a guest and interesting conversation i can't wait to listen to the podcast and see how much you edit down <laughs> we spoke a lot <laughs> yes all right yeah. thank you have a good one all right you too take care thank you all right talk to you soon you too you are now leaving the fandom squad podcast i don't want to go